When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. And folks, we got a treat today. Most of you have been on uh, Zoom for some period of time if you are doing any kind of business ever. And you're also probably very familiar uh, if you are part of the demographic that I target with this podcast, um, with the platform. Um, Scott Shoot is the uh, fellow that I have on as a guest today. And I've been really, really looking forward to this conversation. Um, he was the former head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn. And before that, he led a team of over a thousand people at LinkedIn uh, as a VP of operations uh, with an operational uh, uh, portfolio. Um, so there's both practical experience, but also this thing around mindfulness that is kind of an interesting blend. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to have Scott on the show, because uh, it has to do with how do we operationalize? How do we actually uh, make compassion part of the workplace ethos, number one, but also the part of the workplace dynamic? You know, how, do we, how do we actually work together you know, from a compassionately perspective, a compassionately uh, capitalistic perspective, both internally, but also as, uh, as we face out into the marketplace. So with that as just kind of my preamble here, I want to welcome Scott Schutz. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. It is an absolute treat to have you here. And um, you know, the, the folks that are listening weren't privy to our initial conversation. Uh, but just in terms of getting to know you before uh, we went, uh, went on air with this show, uh, I, I was yeah, I fell in love with you. First of all, I'll just kind of make that declaration. What <laughs> yeah, you're up it's to? It's a bromance. Here we go. It's a bromance. It's a bromance. <laughs> what you're up to, what you're about, speaks volumes of what's possible to me. Uh, you know, part of my mission in life has been to, you know, I actually operationalize compassion in a business context. And you're one of the three, four, six, eight people that I have met. And it's a it's a it's a small handful that have actually done this and actually done this well. So I am I've just been thrilled to have you on the show. Um, you know, a good mutual friend uh, Gary Ridge uh, over at WD40, uh, CEO at uh, WD40, just announced his retirement. I'm bringing him into this conversation for this reason. Uh, he's been working with compassion as a you know, as a um, modus operandi in his organization. And you know, WD-40 has been around since the 50s. Um, and those of you that are not familiar with WD-40, where have you been hiding? <laughs> I mean, WD-40 is <laughs> everywhere. Uh, but Gary is proud of, and he, and he is retiring August 31st, I think is his last day as CEO. And he's been CEO for over 20 years. Um, but their employee engagement scores, uh, and employee engagement is the holy grail, emotional employee engagement, not just, you know, lip service to it, but emotional engagement. 
they've been off the charts year after year after year. I mean, they consistently, uh, from a metric perspective, clock in at 93, 94% employee engagement, which is That's amazing. unheard of. It's just amazing. Um, so they're, they're operationalizing you know, compassion in the workplace as part of the way that they actually go to market. And they're in, I think, just about every country on the planet today. So with that is just kind of my monologue setting things up here. You know, your, your role as the former head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn, it came after an operational role that you were in for a number of years. Can you talk a little bit about sure. the migration that kind of moved you out of that and yeah. what compelled you to get into this other <laughs> thing because you know, you've got it, this intersection between workplace and ancient tr wisdom traditions that is just intriguing as hell. Yeah. Doesn't it seem obvious from my LinkedIn profile? No, <laughs> really? of course not. So here I, I have kind of two parts of my life, you know, that show up. One is as an executive, as you mentioned, I led this big organization. Mm -hmm. It was one of those 24 by seven jobs, you know, a thousand people across, you know, 20 locations. But Another big part of my life is I've had a meditation or contemplation practice since I was 13. I've been teaching since I was in college. It's a huge part of the, my outer life, not at work. And I kind of got into that, but I never talked about it at work, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of got into this point in my life where I didn't care anymore. Like <laughs> I was comfortable <laughs> in my own skin. And part of it is probably I was old enough, you know, I was in my mid forties, I was successful enough, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to fired over this or I would be okay if I did type of thing. And, and LinkedIn was such an open place. I started there nine or 10 years ago. Our CEO was talking about his own meditation practice using Headspace. And I thought, wow, what an amazing place. Maybe this is a place where I can be my full self at work, like really bring my full self. So I found a way over time to start with just leading one meditation practice on a Thursday afternoon. But it took me months to get up the nerve to do that. I'd had the conversation with my friend who runs our wellness programs. We got all excited. I got all excited. And I went back to my desk and I did nothing about it for three or four months because I was, I was terrified. Like, what are people going to think about me? You know, what is this going to do for my brand? Are people going to think I'm whatever? And I finally got over all that ego nonsense and did it. And that, that first session, I got to tell you, there was one guy there besides me. <laughs> so imagine here's, here's this VP, you know, and here's this guy and we're sitting kind of chair to chair doing this meditation. Yeah. I never saw him again. <laughs> oh, really? But, uh, yeah. He's probably just as scared as I was, but the next week there was three and the week after that there were five and it turned into a regular thing. And then I would get invited to do bigger things. Like people knew I did it. So the CFO would have an offsite with 400 finance people. And he'd invite me to kick it off with a meditation and things like that. And I volunteered to be the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program, which we didn't really have one. So I created one with a bunch of other volunteers and did that for three or four years. Still in this operations role, you know, and over time, Instead of my 2% project, it was becoming my 10 and 15 and 20% project. And for me, the tipping point was our CEO, Jeff Wiener at the time, about four years ago, gave the commencement address at Wharton, you know, very serious button down Wharton, right? Oh, yeah. He's an alumni. And he talked about compassion. You know, if you're going to be successful in life, successful in business, be compassionate. 
And then the next day he's on TV on Good Morning America. And this is all the reporters want to talk about is compassion in business. And I'm watching all this thinking, okay, it's time. It's time for me because I had hit that tipping point. I've been in ops role for a long time. I wanted to make my career out of this, but it was also time for LinkedIn. Here was the CEO essentially telling our 15,000 employees that compassion was the most important thing that they could do. But what does that even mean? How are we going to operationalize that? What do they do when they go back to their desks? So I made a pitch to him and our head of HR, and collectively, we created this role, head of mindfulness, compassion, where my mission, my vision really, is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. So that's kind of how we got there. Mainstream mindfulness and operationalize compassion. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's kind of like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I feel like a kid in a candy store here. Um, the mainstreaming of mindfulness, I mean, there's been enough going on you know, you know, in the business world today where mindfulness, you know, I mean, Google's got a mindfulness practice. I mean, many organizations do today. So I'm going to leave that one just kind of on the shelf right sure. now. Operationalizing compassion. Uh, that one, you know, you, you, you know, you've got my, my, my attention on this. Because, you know, when I was having conversations, and you know, folks that are regular listeners of the show have heard me tell this, but when I was having conversations with John Mackey and, and Raj Sisodia, who you know, co-authored uh, Conscious Capitalism, I said, look, guys, I love what you're doing here, but consciousness is, it's awareness, awareness of a broader yeah. stakeholder universe. Right. What's the behavior that you're empowering here? What's right. the behavior that you'd like to see? And they're going, well, you know, just your consciousness. I'm going, well, no, there's got to be something bigger. There's, there's something else here. Right. Compassion, right. compassion is the consequence of, of awareness or of that kind of awakening yes. to it's a bigger stakeholder. Yes. Compassion doesn't exist without the presence or the experience of connection. So it's one thing to be aware of a greater stakeholder universe, but it's another thing to feel connected mm. to those stakeholders, right? which is where the compassion can come into play. So right. when you talked about you know, operationalizing compassion, where did that migration take you or where did that question actually lead you and, and sure. LinkedIn? Uh, well, and it led, you out of, it led you out of LinkedIn eventually. Sure. Well, let's talk about Let's I'll give you my definition of compassion first. So we're, we're, okay. we're in the same zone. So the way I define it is capacity first, because our capacity for compassion ebbs and flows minute by minute, day by day. So capacity for three things. The first one is awareness of others. The second one is the mindset of wishing the best for them. Or you could say a mindset of kindness or even love, right? And the third one is the courage to take action. And I think that's the hard one. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is the difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is the first two, um, but but empathy plus action is closer to compassion. OK, but what does that mean? Now, it's easy to see like people to people in our peer group. Right. If something bad happens to one of our team members, their house burns down or their wife has cancer, whatever, some horrible thing. It's easiest for to all kind of jump to okay, let's help Bob because Bob's going through a hard time, right? That's usually what we think about compassion. In a context of business, I like to think about it. That's true, how we treat each other internally, but how do we treat our customers with the same lens? Do we really know them? And many customers do. They really try to get to know their customers or sorry, companies know their customers. Second one is, do we wish the best for them? Are we really trying to solve their problem? 
And this is the connection you're talking about. Do I see them as people and not just numbers? And then the third one is, do I have the courage to take action? Okay, well, let's, let's give a couple examples. So in the world of LinkedIn, and what I'd say is, I didn't make LinkedIn a compassionate place. It was already like that. But part of my job was to be sort of like an investigative reporter to say, how did this happen? And what is it? And what are the elements that we could then bring to the rest of the world? So as an example, in product review, I used to sit on the product executive team and every week there'd be five or six or eight product reviews. And it's kind of like Shark Tank without the attitude. <laughs> so a product, a product manager comes in to the product execs and says, hey, here's the latest version of my product. Here's what it's going to do. Here are the benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So it might be, oh, with these changes, we're going to get 17% more engagement. In other words, 17% more clicks. And the first question, the very first question, unless the product manager answers it already themselves, the first question is, okay, well, that's great, but what's the member experience like? In other words, what's the customer experience like? And if the product manager says, well, it's actually not great, but hey, did I mention it's 17? You know, the meeting stops. It's over. And that product manager gets a sinking feeling like they stepped in something, right? And we end up having a conversation about our number one value as a company, which is members first, you know, and we, then it turns into this discourse for 20 minutes on why we're talking about members first and why it's so important to us. And I guarantee you that that product manager will never do that again, right? They will always be thinking about members first. So if we boil down this behavior into its simplest form, I think it's the movement from me to we. Right, This movement, I'm just solving for myself, or in a business, you could say, I'm just solving for money, for shareholders, into I'm solving for the whole. And the whole is all of the stakeholders, including the shareholders, but it's also the customers. It's also the employees. And as you mentioned, Rausch Asodian team discovered that companies who act like this are way more profitable, 14 times, 1400% more profitable than the S&P average. So this is not some sort of soft, like do goody hippie type of thing. Like this is actually how you build a business. Yeah. Yeah. It's a couple of things here. I, I mean, I love this. You know, so the idea of you know, taking responsibility uh, for the whole, for the whole ecosphere, um, that's the, uh, the World Business Academy. And I, I sit on their board and I have you know, for a number of years. One of, well, it, it is the founding principle. Business is taking responsibility for the whole. And I mean, it's, it's a kind of a global admonition. Yeah. Um, not many businesses actually approach it from that perspective. <clears throat> and one of the things that I'm struck with here that I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about, Scott, is that now you mentioned that, you know, LinkedIn was already you know, kind of coming from a compassionate ethos anyway, you know, that kind of the you know, foundational piece here. But the decision-making process, mm. and folks, I hope you caught this when, when he was talking, because there's something here that is absolutely, absolutely foundational to compassionate capitalism, mm. and it's running your decision-making process through the filter of first do no harm, mm. and you know, that, that, whole, that whole, almost a Hippocratic oath for business leaders, first do no harm. How are they benefiting? They, meaning whoever stakeholders are, are being impacted here. That preceded, you know, if I can look at it, 51%, 49% here, there's still a business you know, need 
to do some things. But if it doesn't pass that first threshold of first do no harm, then we have a conversation. That's right. How difficult was it to get that in place? Well, again, I didn't start it, right? This is how the company started. And it started from the very beginning with Reed Hoffman. And then uh, Jeff Wiener was an early, not quite founding CEO, but uh, was there from the very beginning of the growth phase. Just it started that way. And at LinkedIn, partly it started that way because this we knew was an obvious way to grow our business. Right. If you wanted to have an enterprise business and sell things to recruiters and salespeople, you didn't want to mess up the business for members, the free members that are part of the site. So it became obvious if we do the things that are good for members, we will later be able to build an enterprise business on top of it. So part of it was structural. Part of it was we had people in place who just operated this way. They'd had their own personal epiphanies. And so I think it was kind of this magic alchemy that allowed it to be self-enforcing, self-reinforcing. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, we're, we're more successful when we act like this. You know? And when we act like this, it becomes easier to have no jerks you know, as part of our hiring <laughs> process. It makes it easier to say to our shareholders uh, that we're going to make decisions for our members because that's good for our business over the long term. So part of it was structural, part of it was the people who are there. But I think every business can start from this place. It's super challenging for some people who are driven by quarterly earnings, right? It takes an extraordinary amount of courage for the CFO or the CEO to say, look, we are convicted that when we do the right things for customers over the long term, we will be more successful for shareholders. But you need to give us some slack in the short term. Because sometimes in the short term, we need to do things that sub-optimize the finances in the short term so that we can optimize the business for the long term. And that takes courage. That that kind of goes back to the courage to take action. That's right. Now, you know, LinkedIn was acquired by Microsoft. And I've been part of a number of mergers and acquisitions of pretty large organizations coming together that have you know, in some cases, almost antithetical cultural dynamics. Uh, and I'm not a anybody in this one, but yeah, I've got to guess that Microsoft's culture and LinkedIn weren't exactly completely you know, synchronized. Well, interestingly enough, so um, I think Satya Nadella has done an amazing yeah. job at Microsoft. I'm not that been. close to it, but the people that I've talked to that have been there for a long time, it just seems like he's a much different type of leader and Microsoft is a much different type of place in the last five or six or seven years, however long he's been in charge. Um, and you see that in its results as well. Microsoft was, I mean, six or eight years yes. ago, was anybody talking about Microsoft as one of the companies of the future? No, it was like this dying dinosaur. And now they're right up there with you know trillion dollar market caps. So- uh, Satya and team did a fantastic job of creating a space where they essentially left LinkedIn alone. We got to operate fully as LinkedIn. It wasn't, um, you know, it's kind of like having, uh, well, it's kind of having a very supportive rich uncle. <laughs> we got we got to do the things, you know, to build our business and have the support of Microsoft, but they didn't get involved in the day to day. Uh, unless we needed them or wanted them to. So it was a fan, it has been and still remains, I believe, a fantastic mixture. That's great. I, I love that. Um, folks, we're talking uh, to Scott Shute right now. 
We're going to take a real quick break. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about a, you know two things in particular. One is a new project that you're actually you know kind of beginning. It's embryonic at this age, but I yeah. want to actually begin to talk about that because there's an I think some incredible promise with that. And the other one is your book, The Full Body Yes, cool. because I mean the title itself is fascinating, and I and I've you know, kind of done some you know reading with it. It's it's really good. It's really good. So I want to give, give us an opportunity to just kind of look at that because I think the two actually come together here in a, in a very interesting way. So we'll be right back, brief break, listening to Scott shoot and uh, I'll see everybody back here in uh, about oh, a minute and a half. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going onto that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52 week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business? That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link. And there you'll find the link to the leadership mastermind program. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this little commercial. And now back to our show. Welcome back, folks. Um, we're talking to Scott Shute, or I'm talking to Scott Shute. You're listening to him. Um, and before we took the break, um, I wanted to uh, be sure that I had teed you up as a listener to pay attention to what's coming next. Uh, Scott, you've got a, a, a new project that you're kind of beginning to play with that I think yeah. is fascinating, really yeah. fascinating. And I also want to be sure that we weave your book in it because sure. they are you know, kind of, uh, I'm not sure which came first here, the chicken or the egg, but I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that they actually kind of combine very interestingly here. So I'm going to just kind of give the floor to you right sure. now. What are we doing with this? Sure. Well, the book is called The Full Body Yes. And this is essentially, you know, I was in this role of head, and, head of mindfulness and compassion programs. And I was thinking, how do I write a book about how to be compassionate? And as I started to dig into it, I realized that at least for me, 98, 99% of my ability to be compassionate started with me and my own mess, right? And getting out of my own way. And so this book is that, it's the story of my own journey. It's filled with stories. It's story-driven. Like my promise to you is that it won't suck. <laughs> it's, not, it's not one of those boring books that you feel like you have to read. Like it's written like a novel. Yeah. Um, and it's designed to show this journey from me to we, our, our own development. And, you know, so it's fun. I think it's fun. Now, it it's, it's a fun read. It is. The stories are great. And as I was writing it, I realized, wow, it's not a how-to book, though. It's a fire starter. It's designed to get people excited. But then they're left with the question, okay, well, now what? Now what do I do? 
And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I had a workbook that went along with the book to, you know, help people go along. And in my world today, I do executive coaching and leadership development. And as I coach people, I'm like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I had this way for them to implement really easily in their organization, the things that we're talking about. And that's the project I'm working on next. I'm working on this Teams project and it's designed, it's called Changing Work for Teams or you know, Changing Work from the Inside Out. And if you can get a manager to commit to 20 or 30 minutes every other week with their team to do this thing together, right? Because if, if you back up and think about where we are in the world, we've been at home or mixed or hybrid for the last two years. We've had lots of change, people resigning and leaving. And these team and everybody internally is recalibrating themselves on why am I at work? You know, am I really going to work for this person, this job, this company? So all this change is happening. And so this experience is designed to get us aligned, to get us to know each other, to put some really simple tools in place around how we make decisions. Are we aligned with the company values? Um, who, what's important to us as people? And ultimately, you know, how do we share gratitude with each other? And look, I spent 25 years as an ops guy. This thing is designed to be super bite-sized, clean, operational size. And it's not just some training that you go through. It's designed to live so that actually takes hold and takes root in your organization. So I'm super looking forward to it. We're, we're piloting it uh, at the beginning of April, and hopefully it'll be you know, out in the wild in the months to come after that. You know, one of the things that I'm intrigued with about it <coughs> is... Um, you know, I've been in this business for, you know, 40 plus years, um, you know, delivering programs, keynotes, pro, yeah, trainings, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And one of the, and this is kind of an epiphany I had back in the uh, mid nineties, I guess it was, uh, I was doing leadership development. I, I designed a major program for Nokia. Um, and I was part of their global leadership uh, development process uh, as an external consultant. And I ran that portion of the program uh, for about 12 years as an external consultant to them. One of the things that I stumbled on, and I literally stumbled on it, uh, and it came out of some other work I was doing, was you know, coaching. I mean, I was doing you know, some, uh, I've been doing coaching for you know, forever, but I never called it that. You know, we didn't have a name for it when I started doing it. Um, but I started looking at what's, what, what would happen if I bundled coaching with a training platform? Sure. And then ran that coaching program for about six months after the conclusion of the training itself. Mm -hmm. The efficacy of the training program went off the charts as a consequence of that. Sure. And, and what the epiphany was, was instead of an event, it now became, and this is you know the word I'd use now, but it became more of a lifestyle. This is just kind of how we do right. what we do. Right. That's what I'm intrigued with about your program is it takes the developmental question out of, well, let's do a program right. to the point of, this is just part of how we work. Exactly. And then at that point in time, it becomes a game changer. It's not event driven. It's just, this is the nature of our beast. Right. And, and then it becomes your culture, right? Exactly. This is the challenge that most companies are trying to solve is how do I build a great culture? So it turns out in other research, company culture is 12 to 14 times bigger of a factor than compensation 
in whether somebody stays or goes. And it's these types of things that build connection, build a sense of purpose, build a sense of meaning in our world and make it easier to work with each other. That's, that's part of the culture. So we're, we're working on operationalizing these things that have compassion at the roots, but it's also not compassion in your face. You know, if, (laughs) if, if I were to offer a mindfulness and compassion program, I'd get 10% of the company who's interested. But yeah. what this is, is just a straight up, here's how we work together. This is the best way to work together. But the truth is, at its very roots, behind the scenes, layers deep, it has these principles, this ethos built into it. Yeah. You know, when I grew up on the farm uh, in Oregon, uh, when I was you know, pretty young, uh, you know, we'd go out and we'd you know, be roaming the fields and garter snakes and uh, uh, racers and, and that kind of thing were out there. So we would you know, want to go catch a snake. The way you catch a snake is you get it attracted to something shiny in front of it, and then you come in behind it and grab its neck. <laughs> and then you got the snake. Uh, that's essentially what you're doing is you're, you're, you're snake wrestling here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like I appreciate the analogy. I'm not sure it's going to one I'm going to put in my marketing materials. But uh... <laughs> But yeah, it, it's for me, it, I mean, how do you operationalize mindfulness? How do you operationalize compassion? In today's world, you don't lead with that. Yeah. You don't lead with that. Yeah. Because most traditional business leaders, and I say traditional, um, most business leaders have come up with a model, uh, and, and this is just my experience. Uh, they've come up with a model that is you know, a legacy model. Yeah. And it's predicated on ROI. It's predicated yeah. on you know, traditional metrics. And uh, so that's the line. That's the language that they're going to be paying attention to. Yeah. I, actually, and, let's just take a little side eddy down there. I want, I'd like to talk about mindfulness for just a second. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, you, if you think about the think ROI about the of mindfulness, this is, this is what people will ask me. Like, okay, you're a business guy. What's the ROI on this stuff? Well, think about this. As we've moved from the agrarian age to the industrial age, to the information age, a company like LinkedIn and lots of other companies don't have physical goods, right? We're selling data, right? We don't have a manufacturing line. We're selling data, which means our number one employees, i sorry, our number one asset is our employees, is our people. Yeah. Now, that's one, if we can all agree on that, right? Our number one asset is our people. Now, two is when I ask people, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if you think about 10 as being your best, when you're having your best day and regardless of what happens to you, like you are at your best, where are you kind of normally at work? <laughs> you know, people will laugh and they'll say three or five or seven. I'm like, okay, let's just, it's not scientific. Let's call it six and a half. And everybody laughs and says, yeah, that's, that's probably about right. Okay, well, if you are the manager of a plant, of a physical machinery plant, and your number one machine who pumps out the most productivity is over in the corner and it's smoking and making noise and operating at 65% of capacity. Do you need to do an ROI study to know that it needs maintenance? And are you willing to go do maintenance to get it back up to 100%? No, you don't even ask the question because it's so incredibly obvious. Of course, you have. that's our most expensive and highest production machine, of course, go do the maintenance, do whatever it takes to get it at 100% again, or as close as we can, right? So don't even ask me, we, should, we shouldn't even have the conversation about <clears throat> what, how should we invest in our people's mental well-being? How should we invest in our people getting them closer to 10? It's not even a thing. It's not even close. 
Not even. Yeah. It, it's, it, it ultimately is a red herring that is just the justification for, you know, fill in the blank on that. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the great resignation that we're encountering today, and you mentioned this, I mean, um, culture, um, 12 to 14 times more uh, in, uh, significant than money. Yes. Do I, how do I feel about me when I'm in the presence of you as a company, you as a, yes. you, know, you as an organization, if I exactly. feel uplifted, I'm going to probably hang around. If That's I right. feel I have an opportunity to thrive, I'll probably hang around. That's right. Um, yeah. You use the word asset uh, and everybody has heard this. Our people are our greatest asset. Yeah. Question that I will always ask when I hear this come up is on a balance sheet, what do you do with assets over time? <laughs> They are depreciated. <laughs> okay. And that's the experience that most people have in organizations is they yeah. feel over time depreciated. That's right. They feel they yeah. feel like it's exciting in the beginning, but over time we just kind of get used to I'm, it. They become the fabric. You're the new shiny machine over there in the corner, but now you know, for tax purposes, we're going to depreciate you over time and, and defer <laughs> maintenance. And so so the idea here, if I go back to uh, compassion, you know, the courage yeah. to take action. How do I bring my, my people, my greatest asset to the, to the realization? How do I bring my organization to the realization that curating them being the best that they could possibly ever be as a consequence of working in our environment yeah. is, is, is the promise that we're making to them? Yeah. Yeah, that that is that's a cool question to ask. And yeah, it's look, it starts it starts at the top, right? It starts with the leadership team to say, I'm going to solve for the whole. Right. If if we're only solving for shareholders, then I'm going to make all kinds of decisions that um, sub optimize. Right. So in in the world of systems theory, it's impossible to optimize all of the subsystems and the entire system at the same time. Yep. It, not hard, impossible. Impossible. Yeah. Impossible, <laughs> right? And we already talked about how the best system is one that balances the needs of all of the stakeholders. And so if you're only trying to balance, if you're only trying to focus on the subsystem of shareholders, then by definition, you know, you're de-optimizing for customers and you're de-optimizing for employees. And in the context of, if you know that the best system creates a balance of the three, you're going to fail. Yeah. So how do we continually think about how do I create a great experience for my employees where they want to do their best work and they're enabled to do their best work? How do I think about my customers as if they were me, as if they were my daughter or my grandmother on the other side of that? And then also, how do I think about my shareholders? I want to provide them a fair return and do what's right for them. And knowing that the balance of these three things is the way to success is a very, very powerful starting point. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I came across a definition of hell the other day that I thought was really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and it's when my current self meets the self I could have been. Ooh. That I... That's the experience. assuming the could have been is better than my current. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that, that was part of the predicate. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but that, you know, that's you know, people experience you know, being at work sometimes is this is hell. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not enjoying this because right. they know that they could, they could be much better. They right. could have 
much greater right. experience than they're currently having. So right. Scott, we've been listening, uh, Scott, yeah, folks, we've been listening to Scott shoot, um, get his book, the full body. Yes. Uh, you will not regret it. It is an exceptional read. It truly is. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to? Sure. They can find me at Scott. You can find me at scottshoot.com. And if you want a couple of the chapters of the book for free, sign up for my newsletter and we'll keep you up to date. Uh, and you feel free to reach out to me there as well. You can find me at scott at scottshoot.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, for more, more kind of daily updates, you can follow me on LinkedIn as well. That's my primary social media place. Great. Scott, so much. Absolutely phenomenal interview. I've, I've loved this conversation and I'd love to have you back at some point in time. Yeah, got, sure. Absolutely. Thanks for having I've, me. I've, I've got a couple of other platforms I'd like to like to introduce you to as well. I think Excellent. we can have great, great fun there. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Folks, you've been listening to The Solar Business with Blaine Bartlett. Uh, find out more about what I'm up to at blainebartlett.com. Um, we've got a lot of resources there that you can take advantage of. Uh, almost all of them are free in some way, shape. So don't, uh, don't be shy. Take advantage. Uh, see yourself as a center of distribution, not a center of accumulation, and life will be good to you. Mm -hmm. Until next time. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>